This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey y'all, it's Crystal. And it's Samantha, and this is Serial Holic Sisters. True crime shit. Hey girl, hey. Hola. Hola, as Ooh. Peggy, as Peggy Hill would say. <laughs> That's a little much. <laughs> Como estes. So how's it going? It is going good. I have this quick little story that I was gonna tell you about. I was gonna text you the other day, and then I thought, no, I'll just tell her about it when we're recording because it's pretty funny and I want to hear how she reacts so oh god oh god I'm I'm excited now what's it gonna what's it gonna be so as as we've mentioned I have gone back to work and so I work at a pediatric clinic and the other day I was there and I really wanted to punt this five-year-old oh my god (laughs) not because so it's not because like it was like a little five-year-old brat or anything like that she was the sweetest thing ever she was so like agreeable and cooperative and like did everything I asked. And she was like, so sweet and good. Okay. Scared me. So I wanted to punch her. So <laughs> why did she scare you? So, and it wasn't like a boo. Ah, I jumped scared. Like it was creepy as fuck. This girl, I'm like going to check her blood pressure and I'm like, okay, I need you to be super still like a statue so we can check your blood pressure. Can you do that? Can you be like super still? And she's like, oh yes, I can be super still. I've been, I've been practicing, um, being still like a statue with my pretend family. Those are the ones that watch me while I rest. Oh, hell no. <laughs> I would have right? uh, uh, straight looked her dead in the eye and said, get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> but she was so sweet. It was just so fucking creepy. And I what like looked over, well, I looked over at her mom and her mom was just like acting like she didn't say anything. Like just ignored the whole situation. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> That's fine. Never I was fine. like, what? We're all fine. The actual you fuck? You won't be haunted. No worry. <laughs> I was so happy I didn't have to give her any shots. She had already had her shots and everything. She was good. She was just getting a checkup. And then at the end, I like brought her this bucket of suckers and was like, choose what color you would want. Hey, spirits, we're good. Like, <laughs> she likes me. Stay away from me. <laughs> creepy, creepy little encounter. <laughs> yeah. So that was creepy. Well, that was fun. It's just like, it's just like the, I'll never forget the little kid that you told me about, which she never tells me like in depth of anything, obviously HIPAA, but she's like, this little boy came up to me with one of those little medicine cups and was like, can I have some juice? (laughs) (laughs) And now every time that I have to give like my kids allergy medicine or something like that, I'm like, Hey, you want some juice? Juice? Yeah. yeah, I love juice. So yeah, Anywho. um, we have a little news. We do, news. we do. So first off, um, if you have not joined our Patreon family, then you should. Episode two is released and on there. It's so on there. It's, it's for you to listen. So all our little Patreonites, it's on there ready for you. Um, we did open a new Instagram page just where we're going to post all of our like Patreon bonus episode info. So it's open to like everybody. So everybody can join it. And then if you're not a patron, you can, if you're not a patron, Patreon, Patreon, (laughs) you can see (laughs) um, what episodes we're posting and what we're doing. So then maybe like, if you see something that interests you, you might think about joining, you know? Yeah. But um, it's on Instagram. It's Serialholic Sisters Patreon. So look it It, up. It is. It's so don't let it get there is two different logos obviously uh, we wanted to separate it so it's super easy it's not a spam account that somebody created like to copy ours that's basically why we wanted to tell everybody because we have seen some people try to copy other uh podcasters right right so this is just um, for just for patreon, the pa- patreon yep. bonus stuff and so, yeah and there's not 
it doesn't go into depth, but it does draw your attention. So for those that are super interested, you know, come join it. It's open to the public. Join us. That was a little culty. So yeah. Yeah, that does sound culty. <laughs> Ew. Ew, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, <laughs> the off-brand, the flavorade, the off-brand Kool-Aid. Yeah, the flavorade. That's right. <laughs> the red flavorade. It was grape. I know, but we're gonna go with red. We're gonna go with red Kool-Aid. Yes. Oh Anywho. yeah. Anyways, <laughs> only because it, it reminds me of the Kool-Aid man. Yes. All right. Enough <laughs> rambling. It's my turn. <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> it's my turn. This time I am doing a suggestion from a listener. Hey, girl. Hey, you know who you is. Okay. Okay. Um. <laughs> so this week I'm covering one of the most litigated murder cases in American criminal history, like ever. Oh. Um. Yeah. So we are going to talk about Jeffrey McDonald. Oh man, I thought you were about to say Jeffrey Dahmer and I was going to get so mad. No, <laughs> because this is I the other this. Jeffrey. This is the say, other Jeffrey. <laughs> I, I will say, I know, I know we haven't gone through Jeffrey Dahmer. I, we try to separate like the most known cases. Yeah, we try to like spread that, them out and not but, do them all back to back. But I called Jeffrey Dahmer a long time ago and it's a two-parter <laughs> and I know... <laughs> For those that have been like dying to listen to that episode, um, it's coming out soon. I haven't, I haven't decided when I want to do it because it is going to be a two-parter. Yeah, that's but, a lot of info. But yes, it's, no, it's... I was like, no, you are not. Bitch, <laughs> <laughs> no, I called it. No, Pro- Jeffrey McDonald. <laughs> proceed. <laughs> okay, well, now that we got that all straightened out, I will proceed. Um, I, was about to, I was about to end this. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel the recording. <laughs> all right. So get all comfy cozy. Let's get into it. Okay. Okay. So Jeffrey Robert McDonald was born October 12th, 1943 in Jamaica, Queens, New York. So he was the second of three children born to Robert, who was known as Mac to everyone, and Dorothy McDonald. He had an older brother named Jay and a younger sister named Judy. And during his childhood, he was described as like a kind and agreeable child. Like it said that his mom has said that if there was like a chore for him to do, he would do it cheerfully and without even being told to. He would just like, yeah, let me take care of this for you. Meanwhile, my son, I asked him to sweep the kitchen once and he was like, I don't know how to broom. And I was like, go away. I was going to say, anytime (laughs) I ask any of my kids to do anything, they're like, <sighs> yeah right <laughs> like like I just ruined their entire life from for asking them to pick up their own room <laughs> right exactly but not him he was happy to do all of this um so he was raised in a poor household and his father was known as a disciplinarian but not like like I didn't see any accounts of saying that he was like violent or abusive towards his wife or his kids not like that it was He's more like stern. He was stern and he demanded obedience and like achievement from his family, which is a lot. I mean, that's not a bad that's, father figure. It's not, but it's a lot of pressure. I would think yeah, it you- is. I was going to say, it's not a bad father figure to be stern. I mean, that is where you learn tech technically <laughs> that is where you're supposed to learn your discipline from. However, right. right. I can see how it could be overwhelming. Could be a little overwhelming, Um, but achieve Jeffrey did. So in high school, he participated in everything from like music to student council to sports. He was like in everything. Um, He was voted most popular and most likely to succeed. And he was named murdering. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) And he was named prom king at a senior prom. Like he was just like doing real well. He was like. It was like Tex from Charles Manson. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm actually going to mention that in a little bit, but yeah. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> towards All I can uh, think of is how he was like a most popular jock and all this stuff, and then he turned bad. But anywho, go on. He turned bad. So <laughs> towards the end of eighth grade, he noticed a girl walking down the hall with a friend, and he decided he had to meet her. Oh, okay. Her, her name was Colette Stevenson. And within a few weeks, they had become friends. And soon he like asked her out to the movies and they started dating. So they dated all throughout ninth grade. But then um, after ninth grade, they broke up over that summer. 
and he began a relationship relationship that was a weird <laughs> way to say that <laughs> began a relationship with a girl named penny wells and the two of them dated throughout the rest of high school so mcdonald's grades were good enough to earn himself a three-year scholarship to princeton where he decided to enroll as a pre-med student so everything's oh, okay. looking good so far yeah by his second year at Princeton, he and Penny had split up, and he and Colette found themselves talking again. So she was a freshman at Skidmore College in Saratoga, and it wasn't very long before they became romantically involved with each other, and they would, like, write letters back and forth to each other, and he would sometimes hitchhike to Skidmore to visit her for the weekend. It wasn't, like, super far from where he was. McDonald wasn't exclusively dating Colette. Like, he was seeing a few different women at the time. But then in August of 1963, they found out that Colette was pregnant with his child. Oh, so, shit. Yeah, shit just got real. So McDonald ended all the other relationships he had going on. And with her parents' blessing, the two of them got married on September 4th of that year. Which shocks me because if he was a womanizer, how would his parents just be like, yeah, sure, you can marry her. Right. And I don't know that he was really a womanizer or if they kind of just were like hey we're kind of seeing each other but it's not exclusive or whatever I don't know right like I didn't see anything that said specifically okay okay um so they had a fifth avenue wedding and a cape cod honeymoon so they were doing all right for two young college kids I think <laughs> I mean like, I'd say I'd say that's all right <laughs> right I mean I still haven't had a honeymoon and I've been married for like 14 years so whatever well, <laughs> we never had a honeymoon either <laughs> <laughs> not salty it's cool um <laughs> just a little jelly <laughs> uh, right <laughs> so colette had finished two years of college and she wanted to go back eventually and get a degree in english literature and become a teacher but for now she decided to quit school so that she could raise their child while jeffrey continued to go to princeton and like med school and stuff so that he could like become a doctor so their first daughter, Kimberly Catherine, was born on April 18th, 1964. And then after attending Princeton for three years, McDonald moved his family to Chicago, where he, accept, he was accepted to Northwestern Medical School. So he's finished Princeton, gone on to this other medical school, moved to Chicago. Their second daughter, Kristen Jean, was born on May 8th, 1967. And then the following year after her birth, he graduated from medical school. So after he graduated, he accepted a one-year internship as a resident at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York. So he moved the family to Bergenfield, New Jersey. To, that's kind of close to where his internship was at. And this was a rough year for the family. So McDonald was working like 36 hours in a 48-hour time span. So he was only home for about like 12 hours in, in two days. That's got to be exhausting. Right. It sounds terrible. That sounds like the worst. <laughs> right. So when he was home, he was exhausted, as you would think. Right. Um, he rarely spent any time with Colette and the girls whenever he was home because he was just like beat. On July 1st, 1969, after completing his residency, McDonald joined the U.S. Army. So... Which is crazy. Why would you spend all that time and then just go join the Army? <laughs> right. Well... The whole family together moved that like they moved. He went first, but then they came not long after. They all moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So they were like on a base. So they weren't like far from him. Like he wasn't like, oh yeah, off anywhere. Um, so here he held the rank of captain, and he was assigned to the Green Berets as group surgeon to the Third Special Forces Group. Oh, so it's like okay. kind of a big deal. Um, the family lived in a section of the base that was reserved for like married officers. They lived at 544 Castle Drive and they quickly became friends with their neighbors. Um, they like they were super popular among the neighbors. Everybody loved them. It was said that they did argue from time to time, but for the most part, they seemed like the perfect, happy little family. So Colette got pregnant a third time and this time they were to have their first son. So the girls have gotten a little older and developed their own distinct little personalities at this point. So I'm going to talk about them for a second. Um, Kimberly was five at this time and she was attending school on the base. 
she was described as a sweet loving and gentle child um she was a very bright girl and she began reading at a very young age her favorite activities were reading and drawing at five that's pretty cool i think um that is cool she was reserved and like less outgoing than her younger sister so Kristen was two at this time and she was described as an outgoing fearless tomboy which makes me think of a couple mm. girls that we know <laughs> she was yes she was a super active child and loved the outdoors. Um, they were kind of opposites of each other in a lot of ways, Kimberly and Kristen. Oh, like, like my children. <laughs> <laughs> so like, for example, if Kimberly would have, a, that's the older one, if she would have a nightmare, she would wake up and just like sit in her bed and scream for her parents and like wait for them to come to her because she was scared. But if Kristen had a nightmare, she would go like charging into her parents' room and like bust up in there and insist on getting in bed with them. Sometimes Kimberly would get bullied by other kids and she'd come home crying and Kristen would run outside and like go after whoever was bullying her sister. Oh my like, God. Right, right. Like she was this not scared of these kids. Little. This, this little two-year-old would go out and defend her five-year-old sister because that's like what kind of kid she was. She was like, don't mess with my sister. So Aww. I know it's the cutest thing ever. So a few months before Christmas in 1969, McDonald bought his daughters a Shetland pony. So he was planning on one day in the future, moving the family to a farm in Connecticut. So he was like, let's get this pony to start off our little farm. On Christmas morning, he and his stepfather-in-law drove Colette and the girls to the stables and surprised them with the horse. So they were so excited and they named the horse Trooper, which is cute, Aww. right? So this is all nice, right? We've heard all about this happy little family and we would like the story to end here. I know, I was like, what, where's the bad part? <laughs> well, we're about to get to the rough stuff now. So mm. yeah. So let's start with the afternoon of February 16th, 1970. According to McDonald, he took his daughters to the stables to go feed and ride trooper. They returned home around 5.45 that evening, and McDonald took a shower, and he got all comfy cozy in a pair of blue pajamas while Colette made dinner. Then they all ate dinner together, and then Colette left to go to an evening teaching class at Fort Bragg's North Carolina University Extension. So McDonald stayed home with the kids. He said that he then played horsey for a little while with the girls, like he would let them ride around on his back like he was their horse. And then he put Kristen to bed around 7 p.m. So during that time, Kimberly played a game at the coffee table and McDonald took a nap for about an hour. And then the two of them watched her favorite show called Laugh In before Kimberly went to bed. Then Colette got home around 940 and her McDonald sat on the couch for a while watching TV. And about halfway through the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, she decided she was tired and went to bed. But he wasn't tired because he had had that small nap earlier. So he stayed up watching TV. So that's what happened that night. And then early next morning, February 17th, at 3.42 a.m., dispatchers at Fort Bragg got an emergency phone call from McDonald. So he gave his address and reported to them that, quote, some people have been stabbed. And then the dispatcher heard the phone receiver bang up like against the wall or the floor or something. And that was all they heard. That face. <laughs> You're like, what is happening? I know. I'm just patiently waiting. So responding officers arrived within 10 minutes. When they got there, the house was dark and they went to the front door, but it was locked. So they circled around the house to try the back door and they found that the screen door was unlocked and the back door itself was like wide open. So hmm. they walked in. The house is dark and quiet. They made it to the master bedroom, and that's when they found pregnant Colette lying on her back on the floor with McDonald beside her, face down with his head on her chest and one arm around her neck. She had been repeatedly bludgeoned all over the body. In, a, in addition to this, she had been stabbed 37 times. So 20, 21 times in the chest with an ice pick and 16 times oh in in the neck and chest with a knife oh my god yes her trachea had been severed in two places and it was later discovered in the autopsy that both of her forearms were broken so the pathologist oh my gosh. yeah 
Pathologists believe that those wounds had likely been inflicted as she like raised her arms to protect her face. So like defensive wounds. Yeah. McDonald's bloodied and torn pajama top was draped over her chest and a paring knife was lying on the ground beside her body. The word pig had been written in blood on their headboard and it was later. Oh my confirmed- gosh, he's trying. <laughs> There's where the Charles Manson yes, thing comes I'm in. Gonna get Are there. you effing kidding me? Right. I'll get more into that in a little bit, but yes. So it was later confirmed if that this that- is around the same. This is around the same time too. Yeah. Isn't it? So we're in 1970. It was the summer of 69, the Manson family murders. So Yes. So it was later confirmed that that had been written in Colette's blood. You're like, I'm so smart. (laughs) I'm so smart. Oh my God. I was like, wait, this is around the same time. Didn't it happen in at the end of the uh, 1960s, the Manson trial? Yeah. All right. All right. (laughs) You're like, continue. So McDonald was alive, but wounded. And when they approached him he he kind of whispered he's he said check my kids i hear i heard my kids crying so five-year-old kimberly this is rough y'all five-year-old kimberly was found lying in her bed on her left side she had been repeatedly bludgeoned in the head and stabbed in the neck with a knife between eight and ten times the wounds to her head were so severe that they caused her brain to bruise like very quickly putting her in a coma and she died quickly after it was inflicted so so she didn't even feel the stab wounds right um her skull had been five right she was five yes her skull had been fractured and one wound on her face had caused her cheekbone to protrude through her skin so she'd been like terribly bludgeoned it's yes it's terrible um two-year-old Kristen was also found lying in her bed on her left side with a baby bottle lying like right beside her mouth she had been stabbed a total of 48 times 33 times with a knife across her neck back chest and hands the hands being like defensive wounds like putting your hands up yeah oh my gosh Uh uh-huh and then 15 times with an ice pick this is terrible so mcdonald's wounds were much less severe than the rest of his family's he had various well, imagine that. Yeah. He had various small cuts and bruises and what a staff surgeon on his case later referred to as one clean, small, sharp incision that yeah, caused something that you could do your own. That caused <laughs> one of his lungs to partially collapse. At one point at the, after they got there, they were doing CPR on him. And he sat up and yelled, he yelled out, Jesus Christ, look at my wife. I'm going to kill those goddamned acid heads. Right. So he was taken to Womack Army Medical Center where he was admitted and he stayed there for one week. Anybody that would have believed that would have been dumbasses. Because one of the first, um, I'm sorry, that's. No, I'm not. If anybody was in there to kill, if anybody came in, I mean, common sense, come on. If anybody came in to kill your family, they would have made sure everybody was dead before they left. Right. They would especially take care of the big strong man the husband and right been the first one to go usually typically that's the first one to go right so sorry no you're good i I like input so we're gonna talk now it infuriates me Mm -hmm. like i'm getting super mad i'm getting so so mad i'm like how could you do this because you have like this sweet little family and your little girls were so sweet and you had a wife that was loving and actually took care of you and your sweet little family. And you have some nerve to sit here and try to freaking play the Charles Manson card. Right. Like you're doing right now. You little piece of shit. How do you bitch really feel about bitch. it? <laughs> a little bitch ass bitch. <laughs> yeah, how do you think I felt when I was like researching? <laughs> so. Okay. So now I'm going to talk about what McDonald says happened that night. Because he was okay. there. So he's a witness. Oh so, yeah, he's a witness. He's a witness. So I already murder. <laughs> I already told you about the activities of the night before when before like everybody went to bed when they went to bed. So we're gonna pick mm-hmm. up there. So according to him, Colette had gone to bed and McDonald stayed up watching TV. He reported that around 2 a.m. he did the dinner dishes, and after they were all washed, he decided he was gonna go to bed. So when he got to his room, he found Kristen in bed with Colette, the two-year-old. 
and she had had an accident and on like she was on his side of the bed and like wet his side of the bed so he carried her to her own room and decided that he would just sleep on the couch instead of waking Colette up and changing the sheets and all that he was like Mm -hmm. well I'll just deal with it in the morning and I'll sleep on the couch so he took a blanket from Kristen's room and went to the couch and fell asleep now according to McDonald he was then awakened by Colette's and Kimberly's screams that's when he says that he saw three male intruders two white men and one black man he said that one of them was wearing lightweight gloves possibly surgical gloves which is like odd why would just one of them be wearing gloves possibly and why would they they be surgical why would it be surgical right so he then noticed a fourth intruder who he described as a white female with long blonde hair that might have been a wig knee-length white high-heeled boots and a big white floppy hat that covered half of her face he said she was holding a candle and chanting acid is groovy kill the pigs he is straight trying to (laughs) so come the fuck on and then i i would have been like oh you must have watched the charles manson trial (laughs) because you clearly couldn't make anything else up (laughs) Like it's fresh in his head. So he's like, well, shit, let's use this. Um, He reported that the three male intruders then attacked him with a club and an ice pick. During the struggle, his pajama top was pulled over his head and he was able to use that to like ward off the thrust from the ice pick. So he's saying that's why he didn't have as many like stab wounds, I guess. Um, How does that make sense? Like they pulled it over his head and it was still on his wrist. So he was like using it as a shield type thing to block the thrusts it's fabric right (laughs) (laughs) that's why i said how does that how does that make sense it's fabric um he stated that he was eventually overcome by the attackers and was knocked unconscious in the hallway that led to the bedrooms like near the living room when he came to the house was dark and silent He said he went to the master bedroom and found his wife and tried to revive her, but she was already dead. Then he covered her with his torn pajama top and went to go check on his daughters. He told investigators that he attempted to revive each child, but there was so much blood and he had also been stabbed and he was just like very dizzy and it was hard for him to breathe and focus and all this stuff. Right. But that also doesn't make sense because when the police officers and stuff came, he asked them to go check on his daughters because he had heard screaming. Oh, did he? Hmm. So Mm -hmm. he told them that he went to the bathroom to check on his own wounds and washed his hands while he was in there. Then he went to the phone and called for help. And then um, within minutes of getting to the house and discovering the bodies and hearing McDonald's account, military police were immediately instructed to inspect all occupants of like all the vehicles driving around Fort Bragg to search for these intruders. Um, Right. So they're searching for two white males, a black man, a white female with blonde hair and a big floppy hat. So by 6 a.m. they had failed to locate the intruders and they just like stopped stopping every car and they're just like they're they're gone by now if they're a thing. So They spoke to a few neighbors to see if they had heard or seen anything, and they had heard no sounds of a struggle, but some reported that they had heard Colette shouting in a loud and angry voice earlier that night. Like fight them fighting? Yeah. Huh. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> as the Army's Criminal Investigation Division started investigating the crime scene, they were like, ah think he's telling the truth so they found very little evidence what tipped it off <laughs> right they, <laughs> they found very little evidence to support his claims and they began noticing some things that didn't really match up with his story at all mm, for example <laughs> so i just gave you like a brief description of what he said happened when he was like telling the story right. he went into like great detail about the struggle like he went step by step of what happened where he was standing and all that stuff um of, of course he did right so based on <laughs> this reminds me this also reminds me of the lululemon a little bit it reminded me a little bit of um darlie routier that case remember yes yes yeah. yes so Sorry. 
<laughs> based As on like going through some of our old right <laughs> y'all should listen to him dumbass, they're good. <laughs> these dumbass murderers can you guys just not murder anybody that'd be great because clearly <laughs> clearly it, it it'll be easy to determine if you're a liar liar face <laughs> lying liar face so based on what he said the living room should have been a wreck because they had this huge struggle in the living room and he got knocked well, out. right that was not the case at all so put to play it was all put together huh the only sign of a struggle was that the coffee table was knocked over on its side and a plant had been knocked over on onto the floor and that's why it reminds you of the (laughs) yeah shortly after daylight on february 17th investigators found all of the murder weapons right outside the back door like all of them They found an old hickory kitchen knife, an ice pick, and a 31-inch piece of lumber (laughs) that had two blue bloody threads attached to it. All three weapons had been wiped down and had no fingerprints. Of course. And McDonald later claimed that he had never seen any of those items before, like ever. So in addition to there being little to no evidence of a struggle in the living room, other parts of his story weren't adding up. He, he claimed that his pajama top was torn during the struggle in the living room, and that's why he was, like, using it as the shield or whatever. But it probably looked like it had just been ripped, didn't it? Well, not that. There were no fibers from his pajamas found in the living room, like, at all. If it had been oh. torn off of him, there'd be some kind of fibers anywhere. Well, yeah. Somewhere in there. There were fibers from his pajama top found under Colette's body and both in Kimberly and Kristen's bedrooms. So... According to his story, he hadn't even been wearing the shirt by the time he went in their their rooms. Like, yeah, it was already off. He'd covered Colette up with it. I remember that. So there was also one fiber from his pajamas found under one of Kristen's fingernails. Like she was trying to defend herself. Right. And then um, this part's really annoying. There was a single piece of skin that was found under one of Colette's fingernails, but it got lost. So like they, did, they never tested how it. How did they lose that? They lost it. They lost that major piece of evidence. Like it's annoying. So they searched the house for footprints. Uh, McDonald had said that he distinctly remembered the woman's white boots were wet and muddy, which made sense because it had been raining. But However, there was no mud in the house. There was no mud. There's no muddy footprints. The only footprint they found was a bloody barefoot print in Kristen's room leading like from her bed towards the door which would have been his because he was barefoot yeah Mm -hmm. also there were blood-stained splinters from the piece of lumber that had been used to like bludgeon the victims that were found in all three bedrooms but not in the living room where mcdonald claims he was hit repeatedly and knocked unconscious with it right so that's weird um that's not weird it's right it's fucking common sense sense. so no blood or fingerprints were found on either of the phones in the house which there should have been because he used one of the phones to call for help but he washed his hands before remember right they did however find because that's what you think about when you've got a whole family of dead people yeah you think about washing (laughs) your hands and then you think about washing your hands Instead of calling somebody for help. Right. Because you have to wipe off the murder weapons first and throw them out the back door. Um, <laughs> With your surgical gloves. <laughs> yes. So they did. Speaking of the thir- surgical glove. Surgical. They did find <laughs> a bloodstained tip of a surgical glove beneath the headboard that had pig written on it. So just like the tip of a finger. Mm-hmm. Yep. This glove tip was identical to gloves in a medical supply that McDonald kept in one of the cabinets in the house. Well, of course it was. That's why I said it's it's so convenient that it's a surgical glove when he's a surgeon. Right. So they're like, there's lots of things that aren't adding up to his story. This isn't making sense. <laughs> hey, bruh. So you <laughs> killed your family, huh? <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> so by mid-March... This had happened in February. By mid-March, they had gotten back results from forensic testing on, like, blood and fibers found at the crime scene. And they were like, okay, this really doesn't match up with... The accounts of his own movements throughout the house did not match up with the evidence, what the evidence was showing. So, So all four members of the family had different blood types, which is not super common, but 
it made it really easy for forensic investigators to determine whose blood was where. Kimberly's blood was found on his pajama top, even though he supposedly was not wearing it when he found her in bed and tried right. to resuscitate her. Yeah. Right. McDonald's blood, his blood was only found in significant quantities in two places throughout the home. And guess what? Neither one of them was in the living room. I was going to say, none of them were in the living room. <laughs> right. So they found significant amounts of blood in front of in front of the kitchen sink and um, at the bathroom sink. So but she said he had washed his hands in the bathroom. Right. Did he go wash his hands at the kitchen sink too? <laughs> like, why was there just blood there and there? So Colette's blood was found in Kristen's bedroom, on her bed covers, and on one wall in the bedroom, which does not add up to his story at all. Like she, why she never even left the bedroom supposedly. Well, she didn't. I could see what that how that happened. He was covered in her blood. Well, yes, and I'll I'll give you another theory too. Okay, in, in a minute. Um, Kimberly's blood and brain serum were found in the doorway of the master bedroom. So investigators were able to reconstruct a likely scenario of the chain of events of that night by using the blood typing. And by the nature and severity of the wounds of each victim. So I'm going to tell you that theory of what ha- their theory would happen based on the forensic evidence. So this is what I'm going to talk about why Colette's blood might have been in her bedroom and all that stuff. Okay. So investigators theorized that an argument began in the master bedroom between McDonald and Colette. The neighbor's statements did point to this as a possibility, saying they heard the yelling or whatever. Right. So they speculated that they had gotten into an argument and that Colette had hit McDonald in his forehead with a hairbrush and that set him off. So he did have a mark on his forehead that night, like a red mark on his forehead that didn't break the skin. So if he was hit with lumber in the forehead, you would think that would not just leave like well, a little. Right. Right. So the red mark matched up to this hairbrush that they had found in the master bedroom. So they're like, okay, we think that she hit him with this hairbrush when they're arguing. This set him off and he started hitting Colette first with his fists and then with the piece of lumber that was found by the back door. But how do you, how did he have lumber with him that close? Right. I'll get to that. So (laughs) they believe um, that at that point, Kimberly walked in possibly because she heard like the commotion, heard them arguing. Oh God. And he, and she saw it. Well, they think that he may have been swinging the lumber at Colette and accidentally hit her in the head. And that would explain why her blood and brain serum was in the doorway. So then he picked her up. Right. So they think that he could have thought Colette was dead at this point, or at least she was unconscious. And he picked her up and carried her back to her own bedroom where he decided that he had no choice other than to finish the job. So, yeah. So he stabbed and bludgeoned Kimberly to death. Then he went to Kristen's room, planning to get rid of the last possible witness, and investigators believe by then Colette had regained consciousness, stumbled into the room, and like threw herself over her daughter's body to protect her, because there's a good amount of her blood on the bed and on the wall back behind the bed. Yeah. So that explains why her blood was there. So they believe that he then killed both Colette and Kristen, and then wrapped Colette in a sheet and carried her back to the master bedroom leaving the bloody bear footprint on the way out of Kristen's room. They theorized that he then attempted to cover up the murders. So like we talked about, this was 1970. We talked about in 69 was the Manson family stuff. So it was a very well-known case at that time. Even if he was like, oh no, like that's not true. I, I didn't even know about this case. Even he, if he claimed to say that he didn't know about the Manson family murders, there was a magazine that was found in his living room, an issue of Esquire magazine that had like this huge article on the Manson family murders in it. So of course it did. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like we know, that was one of the things they did. They wrote in blood, different words yeah. and stuff. And one of those words was pig. Pig. Yeah. So... There was the magazine pointing to that. So they believe that he then took off his pajama top and laid it across Colette's body and repeatedly stabbed her in the chest with the ice pick. Then he wiped down the weapons, threw them out the back door, grabbed a scalpel from his medical supply, 
went to the bathroom and stabbed himself that one sharp clean cut that punctured his lung right then they believe that he called for help and laid beside his dead wife to wait for the authorities to arrive and so in that the meantime, is because theory. he cut himself his lung collapsed right that so, doesn't sound like a theory that sounds like um <laughs> you're like that is what happened that's what, <laughs> that is what happened i was there <laughs> <laughs> but that's what all the like all the blood evidence and it was super helpful that they all had different blood types so they could distinctly tell oh yeah um but based on everything that's what evidence leads to what happened like that's what it looks like happened so Funeral services were held on February 21st while McDonald was still in the hospital because he stayed there for a week, you know, with, right. his, with his collapsed lung. Um, mm-hmm. But he was allowed to leave to attend the services and then he went back to the hospital. The next day, Freddie and Mildred Kassab, who were Colette's mother and stepfather, along with McDonald's mother, traveled with Colette, the girls, and the unborn baby boy's remains to New York so they could be buried with Colette's father at the family plot. McDonald was discharged from the hospital on February 25th. On April 6th, they formally interrogated him. And after asking him if he wanted a lawyer, he declined. They were like, okay, well, if you want to like recount your version of what happened, if you want to like change anything or tell us, you know, because I know it was just, it just happened. And so there was a lot going on. If, if you thought of anything else or whatever, here's your chance to like tell your story. Tell us. So he began telling them about the four intruders again. Like he didn't change the story. Gotcha. Midway through this, when McDonald was talking about his own stab wound, investigator William Ivory interrupted him and said, you didn't do it to yourself, did you? So, because like, that's how, that's how you that's do how that. You, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could see my face, but I just gave that look like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> that's, well, that's how you do that, right? Is that what you do? You just ask them blatantly like that? <laughs> like, hey, did you stab yourself, yo, and kill your family? <laughs> you didn't do it, did you? Like, you could tell me, bruh. It's okay, I won't tell. You okay. won't get in trouble, I promise. <laughs> this is on the DL. Oh my, gosh. oh my gosh. So he quickly denied it and told them about how he had to persuade the doctors at the hospital to insert to insert a chest tube into him because he was sure that his lung was punctured, but they didn't, they weren't thinking that. Which to me doesn't prove that you didn't do it to yourself. If anything, I would think that would more point out that, that you, you did it to yourself. <laughs> right. Oh, hey, I made sure I cut deep enough to puncture my lung. Right. Uh, but these doctors don't know that. Hey, I need you to do this because <laughs> I totally stabbed myself in the lung. <laughs> right. Like I tell like he's an army surgeon, a surgeon. So he would know where you need to stab to puncture a lung. <laughs> he's like, like he's like, please put a chest tube in me now. Please put a chest tube in me. <laughs> they're like, dude, calm down. You know, he's like, Yes, I punctured my lung when I stabbed myself. They're like, <laughs> they're like, you don't need a chest tube. He's like, No, I'm being dead serious. I need a chest tube. <laughs> like for real, for real. This lung is punctured. Okay. So <laughs> Let's see. They pointed out the fact that everyone in the house was brutally killed, like major overkill. Mm-hmm. Yet he had basically only a few minor cuts. And he had supposedly seen the intruders. So why would they leave Keep a witness alive. alive? Yes. After all the overkill they inflicted on exactly everybody else. That's what in the house. I said. Right. <laughs> if you're coming there to kill, you're going there to finish the job. Right. You're not going to halfway do it and then just leave. Oh, man, I'm just so tired. <laughs> right. What's one witness? <laughs> the one that actually saw all of us. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so then they began to focus their questioning on the crime scene itself and the weapons used. And McDonald denied ever seeing any of the weapons that were found, even though the piece of lumber actually matched some wood from Kimberly's closet. Oh, that's so, how the wood was upstairs. Right. So I'm thinking it's a piece of wood from her closet. Somehow it might have got knocked off or something. And he just had in his room as a project, like, oh, I need to fix this later. Right. Or something like that. But it definitely came from the house. It came from her closet. He claimed to be unaware of how the fiber and blood evidence could contradict his version of events. 
and he was unable to give an explanation for the lack of evidence of the struggle that he claims happened in the living room of course he's just like i i, I don't know um <laughs> he's like it happened in there but but i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know so they pointed out that if four intruders had embarked on a murderous frenzy in this small of a house like they would expect to see busted furniture and broken mirrors and like holes in the walls and, and blood in the room that you said it happened in <laughs> right but instead the only signs of a struggle were a top heavy coffee table that was on its side Mm-hmm. and a flower pot beside the table with the plant on the floor and the pot itself sitting upright which doesn't make sense right so that's literally the next thing i wrote it didn't make sense <laughs> it doesn't make sense <laughs> they took a short break in the questioning and then when they resumed they repeatedly asked mcdonald to explain all of the physical discrepancies between his account and what the evidence showed McDonald then got angry and accused the investigators of trying to frame him, saying that they couldn't find the intruders and they run about run out of ideas, and they wanted to put someone behind bars so they would look good. So they're just trying to pin this on him. Or maybe but, it's because your evidence shows it's your fault. <laughs> right, possibly. So they asked him to take a polygraph test, and he agreed. But then 10 minutes after the interview was over and he had left, he called the investigators back to tell them that he changed his mind and he wasn't going to take a polygraph test. <laughs> totally sounds guilty. That makes you look so bad, dude. <laughs> he was like, mm, I'm thinking about this. I don't think I'm going to pass this. I better, I better call him back. <laughs> so about that test. <laughs> I think it's I'm a good just, idea. <laughs> I'm just not going to make it today. I've got this thing at this place at this time. <laughs> yeah. Not going to make it. Sorry. Later that evening, McDonald was officially relieved of his duties in the army and placed under suspension. They were like, this looks sketch. You can't be a captain right now. The next day, he was assigned an army lawyer. On April 10th, he hired his own lawyer. Instead of just having the army lawyer, he, he hired a flamboyant civilian defense attorney named Bernard Siegel. That's how I saw him described. Flamboyant civilian defense attorney. Flamboyant. That's a good word. On May 1st, the army formally charged McDonald with three counts of murder, which I don't get why it's three and not four. Should have been four because the unborn child. Right. But Um, you gotta, you gotta remember then at that time, they weren't doing it that way. It's not, it has nothing. It's not as similar as the Chris, um, what's his, Chris Watts. Watts. Thank you. I don't know why I couldn't remember his last name, but it has where he was tried for the unborn right, child right things have changed significantly since then true, which i think are, is great it's great now but at that time it is unfortunate because it wasn't ruled that way in in many cases right and it's unfortunate it should have been four it i should have been four because he totally murdered i totally four. agree um the same day that he was charged he wrote a letter to his in-laws professing his innocence so colette's parents oh whatever and in the beginning freddie and mildred were the biggest advocates for his innocence they were like on board they're like oh they were like he couldn't have done it like we know our son-in-law he couldn't there's no way he could have done this whatever that soon would change like they're gonna flip on that the initial hearing army article 32 went on from july to september um Siegel, the defense lawyer, used an offensive strategy, claiming that the military police had unprofessionally trampled all over the crime scene, thus obliterating any trace of traces of evidence that the perpetrators might have left behind. Which doesn't make sense, considering they found all the evidence in the upstairs rooms. They, they found all the evidence in all the rooms. Um, he claimed Except that they except for the room that that's his living room. <laughs> Um, he said that they lost critical evidence, such as the skin found under her fingernail. Okay. So they lost one piece of evidence. And McDonald's pajama pants apparently got lost. Like his pajama pants that he was wearing, which is weird. That is weird. I agree. <laughs> so Siegel elicited several examples of incompetence from the military police and responding personnel, including a pathologist who testified to having failed to obtain the children's fingerprints for comparison at the crime scene. So this pathologist got on the stands like, I messed up. I didn't get their fingerprints. Like oh, that, that could have changed stuff. Yeah. Um, that does on, 
one witness testified in McDonald's defense. It was a military policeman, Kenneth Micah. He responded to the call and he testified that on the way to answering McDonald's emergency call on the night of the murders, he had observed a blonde woman with a wide brimmed hat standing on a street corner approximately a half mile from the McDonald home. So Micah also testified that he had witnessed an ambulance driver placing the flower pot upright at the crime scene. So that's why the flower pot was sitting upright, but the plant was knocked down. In August, Siegel was approached by a delivery man named William Posey, who said that he may know who the woman in the floppy hat was. So he believed it was Helena Whirl Stokely, a 17-year-old drug addict and police informant. So according to Posey, at around 4 a.m. the morning of the murders, he saw Stokely with three or four young males in her car outside of her apartment. He also claimed that she used to wear boots and a big floppy hat all the time, but after February 17th, she just stopped wearing them. So Stokely was found and questioned, saying that she was with her boyfriend that night, like they were together all night, but also that she was so far out on drugs that she didn't know whether she went to the McDonald house or not. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> so when McDonald himself testified, he contradicted what he had told the investigators on April 6th. So he stated that he had actually moved Colette's body to the floor because he had found her a little bit propped up against a chair. So he's like, oh, I moved her body. He also now stated that possibly because of his surgical background, that's why he kind of like rinsed his hands off of the sink because, you know, he's a surgeon. He's so used to washing his hands all the time. So that's why he washed his hands um, before and checked his own injuries before calling for help. Mm -hmm. When asked about his blood found in the kitchen, he testified that he may have also washed his hands in the sink for some reason before making the phone call to the emergency services. When asked about his and Colette's marriage, McDonald admitted that he had been unfaithful on two occasions, but he insisted that Colette had not known about either affair and their time at Fort Bragg had been the most content of their married life. In October, the charges against Jeffrey McDonald were dismissed as the court found insufficient evidence proving his guilt. Oh my God. So in December, he received an honorable discharge from the army. And he moved to New York, where he briefly worked as a doctor. He then moved to Long Beach, California, where he worked as an emergency room physician at St. Mary Medical Center. So he's just like, he's just out there being a doctor. It was around this time that Freddie Kassab, Colette's stepfather, mm -hmm. began to believe that McDonald was the man responsible for the murders. So Kassab began receiving phone calls from McDonald saying that he and some buddies had tracked down one of the killers and they put them six feet under. So if you didn't go to prison this time, you should. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it's, we put him six feet under. It's cool. He then, uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. Like that's not how that works. Kassab um, also discovered that within a few weeks of the murders, McDonald had begun dating a young woman that was employed at Fort Bragg. Huh, so like right after his wife and children were murdered brutally murdered he just started he dating just starts his... dating again that's not how that works no it's not was... how mourning has been works he also found out that in 1969 he'd rekindled his relationship with penny wells the one he dated through high school mm -hmm. and that was while he was supposedly happily married to colette like that was before this McDonald did numerous TV interviews, including one on the Dick Cavett show, in which he talked about the murders and made several jokes about the investigation. Oh, my God. Right? How morbid is that? So, so morbid. So, days after this aired, Kassab and his wife publicly turned on McDonald, and he personally hand-delivered 500 copies of an 11-page letter to Congress requesting a reinvestigation of the murders. Between 1972 and 1974, the case remained in limbo. Um, legal issues were raised and debated over whether a sufficient amount of evidence and like probable cause existed for indictment. Right. In May of 1974, Justice Department attorney Victor Warheed ruled the case worthy of prosecution. So he's like, yeah, we can try this. Like, 
I think there's enough evidence we can we can totally reopen this case right on January 21st McDonald was he was recalled to testify before the grand jury and during this McDonald was markedly sarcastic and arrogant and at one point he yelled out I have no idea I don't even know what the crap you're trying to feed me cool 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 say that to the grand jury (laughs) I'm sorry I'm just flustered because I'm just thinking you're really that stupid this is your dead wife and children like you look so shitty you look like a Mm. (laughs) on january 24th 1975 the grand jury formally indicted mcdonald on three counts of murder and within the hour he was arrested in california um however on january 31st he was freed on a hundred thousand dollar bail that friends and colleagues had raised so he still has to go to this trial or whatever but he's not in jail this case went back and forth and was drawn out like forever there's so much like it would take me four hours to go over all the trial back and forth stuff (laughs) like it's a lot there were um he was arraigned in may and he pled not guilty to the charges and then there were several like double jeopardy and speedy trial arguments that had been filed by his attorneys and it like went back and forth lasted for years and years freddie kasab never let it go he pushed and pushed for years because he knew that Jeffrey McDonald had murdered his stepdaughter and his grandchildren. Good for him. So, yes. So after years of battling with courts and appeals, Jeffrey McDonald was found guilty on one count of first degree murder and two counts of second degree murder in August of 1979. So nearly a decade after the murders took place. There have been tons of, of appeals since then, but to this day at the age of 77, McDonald is still in pr- prison and he's still trying to appeal and he's claiming his innocence like he still has never admitted in 2017 he informed a reporter that if it takes me saying i killed my family to the parole commission to get out of here and go home then i'm never going home like he's just adamant that he didn't do it at one point i think it was 2002 he's like he got remarried while in prison like he's remarried now he wrote a book like all this yeah whatever (laughs) whatever so sadly, Mildred and Freddie Kassab both died in 1994. Um, I know. Before his death, Freddie recorded a message on his tape recorder stating that he wished for it to be played at any future parole hearings that McDonald might have. And McDonald has been denied every parole request he's applied for. So I from, see you, Freddie. From this, from this tape? I'm, I'm thinking, what yeah. Does it say? Does it say what it says? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see what it said. I didn't see what it said, but he requested that it be played every time, and he's always been denied. So, that is the case of Jeffrey McDonald, not Jeffrey. Can I say, can I, this is my theory on on why I think that Jeffrey tried to blame the woman in the floppy hat and the the guys is because he literally passed the corner and saw her there all the time. Right? Like, she was in the area all the time. Everybody knew it. Everyone knew it. And so he was like, okay, well, I'm just going to blame it on these people because this is the first people that come to mind. Right. And she's just a prostitute. So it doesn't matter. So let's like a drug addict and a police informant. I saw that she ended up dying when she was 31. Drug addict. Yeah. Yeah. I think of like liver cirrhosis or something like that. Oh yeah. Well, but yeah, I think that's true. I think that's why he was like, oh, this person, I know this person exists and she's just a drug addict. I I know this person exists and I remember seeing her sitting here with these, this floppy hat and boots all the time. So I am just going to say this was the girl and then name three random people that I think that she could have encountered with. Right. Then I'm not going to describe it all other than saying their race. But at least I'm going to name this one because at least you'll see this one. Right. And you can possibly question her. And then I look innocent. And she doesn't even remember what happened that day because she's always high. <laughs> Fuck you, Jeffrey McDonald. <laughs> and also, the again, with the Manson murders, he's all like, oh, these hippies were on acid and drugs and like killing people. So let me just, acid is groovy, is what she said, guys. Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. I hate people. <laughs> <laughs> I hate all the people. <laughs> Not really, but yeah it just makes me so like it's frustrating to 
their family. It's so frustrating. Like it, it, this case all started out so great and like it was just this nice happy family and then and then that <laughs> and then that. people are shit because people are absolute shit absolute shit all right well anyways so follow all of our stuff <laughs> follow our stuff guys serialholicsisters.com got links to all of our stuff follow our new instagram page you know we've got the regular one but follow the serialholic sisters patreon too and you'll see what cool stuff bonus episodes we're posting yes it'll be it's not going to be quite as active as our current instagram just because our patreon right now our bonus episodes are only once a month right um once we grow yeah once we grow larger patreonites family (laughs) (laughs) um we are going to start doing a couple episodes and and maybe even some uh listener tales and mini sods and stuff yeah so so send us send us all your listener tales and suggestions and all that fun stuff and yeah let's let's be awkward let's be awkward all right bye bye